you came through thick, thick and fast with your uh, lolly uh, recommendations. Uh, jet airplanes and spearmint leaves, says Simon. Linda says, Wallace, I love milk bottles. Do you recall them? Yes, Linda, I can. You can get them in dairies that divide packets up into $2 bags. Uh, Steve says, Wallace, licorice every time, then milk bottles. Uh, Kathy says, it's so weird. I was eating a spearmint leaf at that very moment. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, wow, Kathy. Um, fantastic. Um, chocolate fish. I got rewarded with them at a university for doing other people's experiments. Uh, and someone says, try slicing Fijaya. Dry them, don't peel, pop a slice in your mouth. The parts of the slice rehydrate at different rates. So you experience the Fijaya flavor, but broken into component parts. Kia for that uh, message. Uh, I don't, actually might even try that. 24 to 5. The panel... RNZ National. The latest report on climate change hit overnight. Hundreds of authors who traversed 34,000 studies for the International Government, sorry, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and the news is sobering. And it came with a warning climate change is a threat to human well being and planetary health. Any further delay in concerted anticipatory global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. And every added fraction of a degree of heating narrows the options people have for adapting the authors, uh, the, author, the author said. With us uh, to discuss is Professor Bronwood Hayward from the University of Canterbury, who is a co-leader of the report's chapter on cities and infrastructure and a member of the IPCC's core writing team. Professor Hayward, kia ora. Nice to have you on. Kia ora. I think I'd rather be talking about 80s music and spearmint leaves, to be honest. You see, but... exactly. We can record Nikershaw, <laughs> can't we? But uh, in a nutshell... <laughs> Uh, the door is closing, and it's closing quite quickly with regards to a solution to climate change is how I saw this report. Am I correct? Yes. Um, I think what's really hard is coming at the time of a war and a pandemic, what yeah. the new science is telling us is that we're moving much more quickly than we expected to reach the limits of what people can actually adapt and cope with. So, I mean, you only need to look at the repeat floods we've just had for Westport, or what's happening for Brisbane and Queensland with eight deaths this week, 50,000 homes without power. And it's really easy for people to understand what this report's talking about when they're talking about cascading and compounding risks. But I think the reality that is so stark, like three and a half billion people are now classified as highly vulnerable to climate change. And the most vulnerable are just exactly what we've seen through COVID, the poorest disabled, indigenous, elderly, children, ethnic minorities. So it's it's really grim, but we've got a chance to act now to make a difference, um, particularly to protect people, because that's what this report's about, but also to take action to lower climate um, emissions as well. It also, I understand, was notable, this report, for including human rights. So, for example, those living in crowded, unshaded homes will suffer the worst from extreme heat. Yeah, I mean, in cities like New Zealand, where we have relatively low um, tree cover, where we're finding that we've got the least tree cover is usually in our poorest suburbs, um, low income, and that's often where there are a lot of children as well. But what's really remarkable when I kind of am in despair um, about climate is that in this report, 
195 governments signed off and agreed line by line that the risks that people are facing now are risks to human rights, they're justice issues, that we need more local and indigenous knowledge and partnerships to actually make a difference. So when you think that 10 years ago, governments weren't even agreeing climate change was real, they're now signing off a report that starts to raise issues of liability, being held to account legally for failing to act to protect people. It's a We've come a long way, but we now have to do the okay. action. We've got a panel here with us, Bronwyn, of course. Uh, Anton, your thoughts, your questions around this? Um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I read a few news articles around this today, and I have to admit it was pretty it was pretty sad to read, you know, and a little bit angry, very sad, um, worried for the future and for our, you know, our future generations. Um, I suppose, Bronwyn, my, one of the things that I feel, you know, is I feel a little bit helpless. You know, it's just me, it's my whanau, and you kind of can't help but think, well, we can... We can do all the right things in our own homes, in our own whare, but really is it going to make a difference? I think that's part of that's part of my frustration is what actually can we do to actually put a decent dent in this huge mammoth problem? Um, so that's, the, that's kind of how I feel. But my question, Bronwyn, is what actually is the answer? What do we, what do we need to do? Because clearly the plastic bags didn't solve the problem, you know, getting rid of those. As annoying as that was and frustrating as that was, because I thought, what am I going to pick up the dog tickle with? Um, but, you know, we've managed to navigate our way through not having plastic bags anymore. But what is the actual solution? Like, what actually needs to happen to solve this problem? And you can give me all the crazy answers that you need, but I just want to know, what does it actually need to happen? I think um, it's a really good question. And this afternoon I've had lots of really sad emails from school kids and teachers and parents who are scared. Mm. And I think um, it's really important that we say, one of the strongest things to do is to take action with other people. So working in schools and sports clubs is really powerful. Approaching government and lobbying, it's not just about building seawalls. If we're thinking about protecting people, what this report is saying is actually things like um, seawalls and all that stuff, it, it tends to transfer the problem just down to the next beach. The basic mm. things we really need to do to protect people are to make sure, just like COVID, that we've got income insurance, that people have got affordable homes, uh, good health and education. If you get those right, people are in a lot stronger position to face what's coming. But we also need to kind of work with nature. So thinking about the green planning, the parks, yes, we need lots of houses, but they have to have trees and, and, and green space around them to absorb water and floods. But in terms of actual um, things you could do right now, it's everything. First off, really pressuring councils and government. We haven't got near enough funding at the moment or the legal structure to plan for city development and to say every building that has to be built now and into the future has to protect the community. Uh, it has to be able to stand for 50, 80 years and cope with all sorts of weather. Um, the other thing is we need to consume less you know like our whole economy is based on lots of fossil fuels people are in a complete panic at the moment about petrol and the effect of the war on their petrol at the pump we actually need to think about weaning ourselves off this uh, and that that's really hard i mean we've had 50 years of having a great time on a petrol economy now we have to think about how to do that differently mm. Linda, but Bronwyn, do we have to? Oh, oh, sorry, if I can just no, follow up really quickly. So, yeah, sure. because I mean, 
you know, if, if whenever we got rid of plastic bags, I mean, someone just said, look, that's the date, probably July the 1st, no more plastic bags. And everyone kind of went, oh, that's going to be an inconvenience. But we just kind of got on with it because we had to. Uh, with, with the petrol thing, I mean, that, that's, you know, we keep getting told that fossil fuels and stuff is, is causing this. Do we, do we actually need governments to say, okay, from the 1st of January 2023, which I know that's only in a few months, um, no more cars and, like, just deal with it? Is that, is that the kind of extreme, is that how bad it's got? Or not. Yeah, it is. Like, is that what needs it to happen? Like, within the next 10 years, we have to do really big actions. And But the trouble with just saying no petrol cars now is that that has a huge knock-on effect for people who can't afford to just get an electric car or haven't got any other options, a working split shift, having to go to work late at night. So it's expensive. You have to invest and support councils for really effective, regular clean, safe public transport that people want to use that's affordable. Mm. All of this stuff costs, but it's only going to cost more later. So stop moaning about how much our rates are costing and ask government to invest as they rebuild from COVID into a new future. Right, Linda. Well, I have lots of conflicting views on all of this because obviously as a gardener and certainly as like a pre-menopausal gardener, I've been at the li- limits of what heat I could stand this summer and I've noticed it, you know, in my own backyard so much that it's changed over the last, say, 10 years, you know, what we can grow, um, the extremes and stuff. But also I've had children in that time and so you just can't afford to let it get you down too much. You have to assume that as humans we can change and I think you know just make positive small steps and I know like my children take it for granted that you should care for the environment and I think sometimes it's easy to get bogged down by these reports and just only see the negative but actually you know COVID has taught us that we are capable of making massive changes to our daily lives for the greater good you know we stayed away from the people we love we wear masks we did all of those things there's no reason why we can't also do these things for the planet even if it's hard at the beginning. Does Linda have a point from that and in fact report says that actually adaptation is taking place right now. It is. It's evolution. We just need to (laughs) scale it up. Right. And and unlike the kinds of action we've had to take for COVID, a lot of the actions that we take for climate make our lives easier. It's thinking about how we live closer to home with the people we love in our communities, spending and travelling a bit less but supporting each other more. And that means actually the collective solutions that have worked for COVID are exactly what we need without the masks and the social distancing. So, yeah, there is good news in this, but Auckland's muggy weather that they've just had, this is a signal for the kind of summers that are a problem and that has helped. So, you know, (laughs) so we're actually really thinking about how we protect Everybody in that kind of weather matters. Before you go, can I just, um, uh, Roman, before you, uh, just on that personal, because uh, I am not standing the heat. I can't stand the heat, and I get a sense. I've lived long enough to get a feel that it, I feel like it's. We've been. I, I talked about this with my wife um, this morning. It just feels like it's getting hotter, and we all wondered how can we adapt, and how can my home adapt. What more can I do to my house to make it uh, adaptable to the the hotter climate? Is this a conversation that each and every one of us in our homes is going to have to face actually quite soon? Yeah, it really is. And this was the first report that architects were involved in writing as well. And there were things that kind of surprised me that I hadn't really thought about. 
a lot of our houses at the moment are built with really great big picture windows, you know, the new build. So even if you can afford a house to start, it's, um, and those kind of homes are trapping heat, which is then requiring everybody to use air conditioning to cool it down. The trouble is that that air conditioning isn't necessarily always going to be stable and helpful, um, yeah. and particularly in big cities. So, yeah, thinking about your tree planting, your house design, but at a really practical level, a lot of those things are beyond the affordability of people who are renting, and so we need government intervention to help and support everyone on this. Kia ora, Bronwyn. Appreciate your time. Uh, that is uh, Professor Bronwyn Hayward, who is a co-leader of uh, the report's chapter on cities and infrastructure and a member of the IPCC. What do you reckon about this? Do you, do you, do you get that sense that <laughs> it is the summers are getting warmer, the summers are getting hotter, in that you're thinking about how to make your home just that little bit cooler? I know I am. Uh, anyway, uh, another important news. Wallace, says JT, uh, Nick's, Nick Kershaw's song is dreadful, but is still better than Toto's Africa. Um, I have a really good mind um, to play Africa by Toto tomorrow because you said that. Uh, but I won't. I won't. I hold off because you're wrong. Um, but uh, that's your view, not mine. It's uh, 11 to 5, the panel. Now, in completely different news, a homegrown drug program has had significant success. So we thought we'd raise it on the panel. Bit of a success story, some good news story here. But some are wondering why not where more is not made about it. Te Aro Oranga, or Pathway to Wellington, is a partnership between the police and the Northern DHB and helps steer meth addicts towards treatment in the health system and employment and away from the revolving door of criminal charges in the courtroom. The study of the project in Northern found a 34% drop in crime to discuss. And by the way, it's had rare cross-party support. And it was actually a program started by National. The Executive Director of the Drug Foundation, Sarah Helm, is with me. Sarah, welcome. Oh, kia ora. I'd really love to put on a vote of support for Toto's Africa, please. There you go. Where's my, where's my pen? Tick uh, for Africa, not the riddle. But this, what is it about this program that makes it so successful where others have had less, have had less success? Oh, it's it's a fantastic piece of work that really needs to be properly funded and extended into other areas. It has, you know, one of the things that I think we do really well, and you've referenced us in the last corridor about uh, climate and COVID, is when we go and take our own path, we we can do wonders in Aotearoa. And so this is an example of that. It's, it has, to a degree, sort of borrowed a little bit from the Portugal model, the famous model um, ah. over there where they're doing decriminalisation. But what essentially they've done is, is really worked in proper partnership between police, the DHB, iwi and community to take a totally different approach to methamphetamine use and addiction. Um, and so they recognise, first off, you can't arrest your way out of this problem. You can't even... Uh, treat your way, use treatment to completely get out of this issue. You've got to get further upstream and, and work with the community to reduce demand and take a more holistic approach. So you have in this in this piece of work people working completely outside of their normal constructs, police 
have been taught how to use some of the health models of brief intervention in order to motivate people to do things differently. They've stopped thinking of them as criminals and start thinking about them as a whole person. Um, they've had employment stuff going on to get people into jobs, you know, a whole uh, raft of things. And it's resulted in a, some, somewhere between a 3 to $7 return on invest, every dollar invested. Gosh. Um, and a 34% reduction in crime uh, among those people who are involved. Before in we program. go to our panel, because this is quite an extraordinary yeah. success story, uh, is, it an, is it possibly just an anomaly? No, I think it's so exciting because it does build on those international things. Um, but they have taken a, an approach, and it's the health-based approach that we've been we've been promoting and advocating. And the drug that probably New Zealanders think of being our worst alcohol is actually probably a little bit up there too, by the way. But um, what we what we hope from this also, because we have this incredible cross-party support, it was created under Key's government. Uh, we saw support publicly for it from Dr. Shane Ritty. Um, the Labour government are supportive of it, although we are hoping to see them speed up in terms of putting their money where their mouth is. Um, and we have had support from the Greens as well. So we have really quite broad support. Yeah, Helen Clark career. said it was quite rare to see the support, mm. uh, didn't she? But uh, anyway, Linda, Helen, you got any thoughts or questions uh, on this particular issue? No, isn't it nice to talk about something other than COVID? Um, I, yeah. I mean, it's great. It's great <laughs> yeah. to see pilot programs work, you know. Isn't that the point? I mean, it'd be nice to see more of these stories again because I think we've sort of forgotten that all of society's other issues apart from housing um, need to be tackled this in is a true. different way. So this it's is great. True. Yeah, it's really great. Do you know as well, this population have been hit by COVID quite badly as well. So if we improve their health, we improve other things, you know, other social issues. Um, we, we are talking about a population you're 18% more likely to use methamphetamine if you're a woman in a poor area. You're three times more likely if you have a disability. So um, we, can, we can do a lot better for these people um, by making this investment. And Tom Matthews. Oh, look, I think it's a great success story. It just sort of shows the power of a couple of things. Collaboration, you know, when we when um, we collaborate and we share resources and we work together, um, we get a lot more done. That's that's the first probably takeaway. And the, and the second thing is when you give people back their mana and you treat them like a human being and say, well, look, you know, no one wants to be addicted. I mean, my experience uh, from the very few people that I do know who have been addicted to methamphetamine in the past is that no one actually wants to be in that place. Um, they need help, and if you're prepared to give them help and get them to a place where they feel like they've got their money back, that can be transformative, and I think this program just demonstrates that perfectly. It's one of those things that we call uh, a no-brainer. You know, if, it's, <laughs> if the pilot's worked, perhaps we should um, we should look at the data and go, hey, that seems to be working, let's do more of that. Mm. Uh, well, Sarah, uh, thank you for being on. Kia ora. Uh, nice to have you on the program uh, on this particular issue. That is Sarah Helm, the executive director of uh, the Drug Foundation uh, there on this um, uh, this uh, drug program, which has had a lot of success. It's called Te Araoranga, Pathway to Wellbeing, a partnership between the police and the Northland DHB. helps steer meth addicts towards uh, treatment in the health system and employment. And uh, look, just by the way, um, uh, a bit of a shout out for investigative journalist Jared Savage uh, for his in-depth, in-depth work on... Uh, that issue, he's been following that for uh, quite some time. It's five to five. The panel are uh, NZ National. I thought I might bring this up. Uh, Kyle Glendez on Salon writes, we hear the powerful slogan, another world is possible, but really 
do we see it? And Carl writes that the limitless imagination of genre novelists like sci-fi and fantasy, they hit a roadblock when it comes to envisaging, envisioning excuse me, other political systems. While the futuristic orientation of science fiction lends the genre an easy ability to reimagine the politics and economics of tomorrow, major works of fantasy rarely seem to challenge the social systems of the past. So why... Kyle asks, in the science fictional future, there's always banking, money, markets, corporations. Why in the fantastical past can we not see beyond emperors and kingdoms? Is it possible not to imagine fictional worlds really different from the worlds that we live in? So I just thought I'd go around the panel and ask our panelists that if you were to design a completely new world, pick your planet and design it, what would be front and centre to you? Linda Helenan. God, you're not putting us on the spot or anything, eh? <laughs> well, it would I'm, just, I'm very... glad you're going first, Linda. <laughs> That's well, a very would... good point. You know, you absolutely... I've never thought about the fact that, yeah, when you read science fiction, all the sort of normal rules of society It's apply, just all the they? normal <laughs> stuff. Apart from the great Lord of the Rings, of course. But and a whole just, lot of technology. Yeah, you got your tech I mean, stuff, you got your fantasy <laughs> stuff, but a, re- a different world entirely. Okay, so, so here's a scenario, Linda. It's called Planet Linda. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're on Planet Linda, if, you're, if you aren't already now. Uh, it's got a garden. What else did it has? It's got... Oh, see, it's, I mean, it's so interesting because you've got to work out what the role of humans are in all of these things. You know, we just recently did the Tongariro crossing. And as I was staggering back down the hill with my feet hurting and wondering why I'd agreed to it, you look at the landscape there and you realize that this is going to, you know, exist far beyond any future of me or anyone I know that this landscape will still exist. And I think that's the problem is that actually, if you were to imagine an incredible world, it probably wouldn't have any humans in it. Oh, okay. Anton? Uh, oh, look, honestly, I'd have to go away and think about it, Wallace. It's yeah. uh, such, a, such a big question, an interesting question. I mean, there's some, there's certainly some value. I mean, if it did have humans, I'll take Linda's point, but if it had humans, because I would like to be on this world, you know, if I'm going to create, I'd like to at least participate in it, um, <laughs> probably uh, it would, you know, it would be guided by some pretty staunch values, you know. So I think that that's one of the things that I um, that uh, I think as, when, when we get it right, um, things seem to work out pretty well is when we get our values in the right place mm. and we're doing things, they're coming from the right place. You know, we're leading with aroha uh, and, and all of that good stuff that, that we love. Um, and then when we when we get out of balance, you know, we end up talking about war and that's that's where we don't want to be. So I think in my perfect world, uh, it would we'd see a lot more aroha and a lot more getting along with one another and prosperity and all that good stuff that we all hope for. I want to live actually, on... Actually, I'd like to I say want, that. Yeah. I'm going to steal his answer too, actually. I'm going to I take want, that as my answer. I want to live on planet Anton. <laughs> I don't want to live on planet Linda. Uh, and speaking no, of maybe which, not. <laughs> what a surprise. Ho-ho. Hello. Hello, Toto. Hello, Africa. Hey, Anton, Linda, kia ora to you both. You've both been wonderful. Uh, I'm Wallace Chapman, back 3.45 tomorrow. See you then. <laughs>